exciting and sad. Um, we will miss you guys, but hopefully some of us will be down there to see you and uh, come, come down there. I don't think I just made a commitment, but we do hope that, <laughs> but we'll see. Um, somebody out there is a pastor and said, I saw your hand, Scott. You, you got that. Um, but uh, no, we're excited, and I hope it excites you too to know, you know, we talk a lot of times about, you obviously, uh, we talk about contextualizing the gospel, and we got to speak it into the people's lives that we're coming into contact with, whether it's Jehovah's Witness, a Buddhist, a friend at work, or somebody overseas. And uh, they're going to be learning the language. I hope you'll be praying for them about that. But then also, each one of us, as you leave here, I hope you know that we view you as missionaries. So when you leave here today, whether you're going over to Starbucks to grab a coffee, or you're going to go eat lunch somewhere, or you're going to go be with your family, or you're going to go be alone and uh, eventually come into contact with some more people, we believe that wherever you're going, you're taking the gospel there. And uh, we want you to connect people to Jesus for life change. We want to equip you the best that you can to possibly do that. We've even got a class going on right now down the hall from uh, some of the people that were in first service of teaching how to share your faith. If you want to get up when I pray in a minute and go to that class, I won't be offended. So uh, feel free to do that. Uh, we would love to be able to equip you in every way we can to be missionaries here in this city and as you go around the world um, to try and do that. And so there's lots of stuff that's happening. You can look at your worship program about some of the things that are happening in our church. I won't go over each one of them. Christmas Eve service is coming up. Uh, we've sold out of tickets for the 530 live service. There are some tickets for the video venue. You have to have a ticket to come. If you come without a ticket, we'll make you stand out of the door for a while. And if somebody didn't show up that had tickets, we'll let you come in. You'll miss some of it. Um, but there are some tickets left for the 7 o'clock uh, live and 7 o'clock video. So make sure you get those today if you haven't already and you're planning on uh, attending that or bringing some friends to that. We'd love for you to be able to do that. And today what we're going to do is we're continue our series that we started last week called Tis the Season. So today's Tis the Season, part two. And I was thinking about uh, just this past week, where did this even come from? Because a lot of times the way I'll come up with a series, it'll come uh, like this year, I'll probably think of what we're going to do next year and jot some notes down, stick it in a folder, and then not think about it until it's just about to come back up. And I remembered how I thought about this series last year. I was driving in my car down Glenwood Avenue, so you never know uh, how God's going to intervene in the routine of our lives, right? We talked about that last week. I'm driving down Glenwood Avenue over by Westgate where it comes underneath this bridge, and I see a guy riding on his bike. He's wearing a Santa suit and a sombrero. And so I just put on my Facebook real quick, saw a guy riding his bike in a Santa suit and a sombrero, tis the season. Then a friend of mine, Ashley Denton, owns a gym, uh, north, uh, it's a CrossFit gym over in that area, and uh, she, set, she put the picture of the guy on there. We have the picture that she sent me on Facebook. There's a guy. Let's see, it's like tis the season. I don't know if it's for Cinco de Mayo or if it's for Christmas, but tis the season. And I thought, this is, Christmas is a unique time, isn't it? Lots of stuff happens, lots of things that we do, and there's lots of times where you think the phrase, tis the season, and it might be because it's weird, it might be because it's different, it might be because it's traditional. And so I was thinking about that a little bit and sat down and started talking with Carrie. Carrie's the young lady you'll see a lot of times doing our video announcements at the beginning. She's a director of communications at Southbridge, works on the bulletin website, lots of that kind of stuff. And we started chatting through having a contest as a church. Or if you see something, you come up with something, maybe you create a situation that you think is unique and it reminds you of the phrase, tis the season, then what we want you to do is uh, put it on social media, whether it's Facebook, uh, Twitter, whatever it is with the hashtag, or if you're a little bit older, pound, number sign, like that, hashtag, tis the season, SBF. If you put it on Facebook, I'd recommend that you make sure you uh, tag Southbridge on that. And if you're on Facebook, you know what that means. Um, you'll tag Southbridge on that so that we make sure we see it. And you'll be automatically entered to do that. Now, it could be anything. So I don't want to pigeonhole you by giving you examples that you might put on there. But, for instance, last week, I know that our worship team was goofing off in between services. They didn't know that I knew this, I don't think. But uh, they were taking some pictures, and we've got evidence of it here. They're out in the lobby snapping some shots. 
which ended up producing results they didn't know that I had access to. And so I've got my ways, worship team. I've got these. But we've got, for instance, our electric guitar player, Adam Talbot, decided he was going to go elf head shot. So we've got a picture of that. If you want to do that, it's out in the lobby. It's available, but we already have an entry. We also have this entry of Pastor Jed, which I'm very thankful to have in my personal library of photos. So there's that. You may decide to go with a throwback picture of your family from Christmas. That would be a way to enter the contest. There's Pastor Jason and our, our old youth pastor, Pastor Josh. Oh, aren't they so cute? There they are. Or you might just see something. Like you're out and about, you're going to eat, you're going shopping, you're doing whatever, and it just makes you think of it. And so like Carrie sent me this picture this week of someone decorated a truck. I think it's pretty cool because how do you get that tree? Like that's just pretty awesome, I thought. And so if you come up with that, we're going to give away prizes at the Christmas Eve service for the best one, just best overall, for the most ridiculous one. So the most ridiculous overall. And maybe if you come up with something like Pastor Jason's, the cutest uh, picture that will be on there. And so if you come up with some of those, hashtag them Southbridge or tis the season, SBF, and uh, connect them to Southbridge if you're on Facebook, you'll be entered for the contest, and uh, we'd love to do that. You won't want to miss the prize, I promise you. It's a good prize. We'll figure out what it is by the time the Christmas Eve service comes, but it'll, it'll be a good prize. Um, so let me pray for us, and we'll jump into the message today. Father, thank you um, that we get to be together as a church, that we can have fun together, that we can celebrate together and mourn together and go through trials together and Father, I thank you for giving us each other. Um, I pray if there are any here that are not connected today with the relationships with other people, that you'd help that begin to happen today. I pray if there are any here that don't have a relationship with your son, Jesus, that that would happen today. I pray as we open up your word that you'd speak into our hearts and our lives. You know what's going on far better than I could, far better than maybe anyone else, uh, even we know of ourselves, could. Um, God, will you please change us and save some of us? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter uh, 2 today. We were in Luke chapter 1 last week. Luke chapter 2 today, starting in verse 8. And so if you have a copy of the scripture, you can go ahead and go there. We're going to jump right into it today. We're talking about last week we did tis the season for anticipation. Today is tis the season to pursue peace. And you may remember last week I told you it was a study in contrast. It was a contrast between the birth of John the Baptist, who was going to be great in the sight of the Lord, and Jesus, who is simply called Great. John the Baptist was going to be born to a woman who was barren. She was beyond childbearing years. Jesus was going to be born to a woman who was a virgin, a young girl, Mary, probably about 13 years old. Both going to be miraculous births. Both going to have the same kind of structure and the passages, but one was going to be a prophet of the Messiah. The other was going to be the Messiah, the Savior, promised in the line of David. And we talked a lot about that last week. This week, the passage we're looking at in Luke chapter 2 comes from that context, but the more immediate context are the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you may read this story every Christmas season, like I do with my family, and it's easy to read past the first line in chapter 2 in verse 1. Let me read it to you real quick. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Easy to just read past that. But again, we have a study in contrast. This time, instead of the contrast being between John the Baptist and Jesus, it's between Caesar Augustus and Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was not born Caesar Augustus. He was born Octavius. That's the name that his mom gave him. He was actually given the name Caesar Augustus by the Roman Senate. Do you know what the word Augustus means? It means holy, revered, the set-apart one. In fact, that word Augustus wasn't used of any human up until this point. It was reserved only for the Roman gods, little g-gods. And so this is the first step of the Caesars being viewed as divine, as being men who became gods. 
They were viewed as God-men. And Caesar ruled the entire basically populated world, the entire Roman world at that time period. He did it by climbing, kind of tooth and nail, climbing up the political ladder, defeating Cleopatra, Antony, and some people that you've maybe heard of or at least seen in cartoons, uh, wearing crazy costumes. And uh, here Caesar becomes the first of the Caesars that are viewed as a God-man. In fact, people declared him a savior. His birth was called good news, the same phrase that's used in the Bible talking about the gospel, the good news for us about Jesus Christ's birth, for unto us Caesar was born would be the claim that they would say at that time. And they would declare him, a human choir would declare him the Savior, and we know from inscriptions we have even now, some places were calling him in Asia Minor, the Savior of the world. And he ruled in what was called Pax Romana the time of Roman peace. That's what this Savior brought, Roman peace. The entire world was without conflict at that time. There were no wars. The kind of peace that he had, though, was the kind of peace where he beat anyone that was his enemies into submission. And so one person I read said that he bludgeoned them into submission. That same person, Kent Hughes, a commentator, says that the kind of peace that they had with Pax Romana would be like a Hitler-type peace, to where even if you were one of the ones that benefited from the peace, it doesn't matter if you're man, woman, boy, girl, You would never speak negatively about that peace without looking over your shoulders in fear. The kind of peace that Pax Romana was was where you manufactured, you controlled circumstances to the point where there was no conflict. You removed the stress, and so you had an outward kind of peace. So that's Caesar Augustus. Contrast that with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes into this world. Unto us a child is born, a Savior is given. There's a declaration of the good news of his birth, only not by a human choir, instead by an angelic choir. He's born not into a palace, but instead into a stable. He's born not as a man who became God, but as God who became man. Think about that for a minute. God became human in Jesus. And he offers a peace that's not the kind of peace that comes from external circumstances being manipulated, but instead, regardless of circumstances, a peace that you can experience. And so there's a contrast that's taking place here. You read about it in Luke chapter 2 as we talk about tis the season to pursue peace. And right after verses 6 and 7, it says, While they, it's Mary and Joseph, they they were in Bethlehem. And they were in Bethlehem because the Savior of the world, the Lord, Caesar Augustus, had issued a decree. And isn't it so sovereign of God that he can use even a wicked king, a blasphemous king, to manipulate his outcome, to control life? And he uses it to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And it says, while they were there, and so they're probably staying there. They probably didn't just arrive there. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn. So it means she'd give birth to other children probably. She was not a perpetual virgin. She was a virgin at the time of birth. A son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so we know that. But while that was happening, verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. In verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them while the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And here's the good news of great joy. Today, in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior, one that will rescue, one that will deliver, one that will redeem, has been born. But he hasn't just been born to people, to all the people. He's been born to you, shepherds. And we as the readers should read into that. That's us too. So it's a personal Savior. It's not just a Savior of all people, not just a Savior of the world, a Savior for, and you can put your name in there, a Savior for you and a Savior for me. To you, a Savior 
has been born. He is Christ, the anointed one, the promised one, the Lord that will rule and reign. Verse 12, this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there's already the glory of God, there's already an angel, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. There are implications for earth too. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And so we read this story, and it's clear that the Christmas story, tis the season for Christmas, it's the Christmas story, is a story of peace. But I scratch my head when I think about it and think, but that's only half the story because we talk about the Bible, but then also about our lives. And we think about our lives and we think about Christmas, and it'd be easy for me to kind of paint a picture of Christmas, and it'd be a good sermon on peace. But should we really be talking about peace? So I think a lot of times we romanticize the idea of peace. We romanticize the idea of the Christmas story. It's kind of, it reminds me of a family photo. Some of you are going to do this this Christmas. You get the family together and everybody's going to wear green sweaters or red sweaters or whatever you're going to wear and everybody's going to be cute and you end up with a product that looks pretty good at the end. Everybody's looking forward. They're all smiling. But how did you get there? Arguments about what to wear before you got to the place and who's got what sweater and did Shanna pick out my sweater and that sweater's got a snag in it or I got some snot on it or whatever and so I got to get another sweater and then you got to try and get the kids to all look forward and the little one's running off so then they, she ends up on the lap but she's crying you make her not cry by pinching her for a minute I'm mean, not that we did this you probably do that and so that it's all this there's lots of stress involved in the whole process and then I think about Christmas and the Christmas a lot of times we do the same thing we talk about Christmas we can talk about it being a time of peace but think about what Christmas is really like. So have you had any people over yet? That can be stressful. Clean up the house. No, stuff it underneath the couch. Put it here. You know, you've got to clean everything up and don't burn anything because then the house smells, plus the stuff tastes bad and you've got stress from having people over. Sounds nice. Got to go last minute shopping. Make sure you get the right gift. Oh, and then there's the money for the gifts. Stress, right? There's just lots of stress with Christmas. I think about some of my favorite memories as a kid because as a kid, the parents take care of all the stress, right? Some of my favorite memories had to do with a ton of chaos. I shared with you one time one of my favorite stories from being a little kid. Um, at a Christmas Eve service several years ago. And uh, what ended up happening is my, my family, we'd all get together. My mom had lots of brothers and sisters, and we'd get together with all the cousins and the aunts and the uncles at my grandma's house. And I had one cousin, we were almost exactly the same age, and so the parents were smart. They would buy us the exact, and I mean exact same thing. So like if he got socks and I got socks, he didn't just get socks and I got socks. He got blue socks, I got blue socks. He got black socks, I got black socks. So I remember one year, so we didn't fight with each other. I remember one year, he got socks, same socks I got. He got underwear, same underwear I got, which is kind of creepy now. But anyway, at the time, that's what happened. Um, then we, the cool present we got, I remember very vividly that year, was a little black truck that carried other cars on the back, had some cool cars on the back. And I remember we were in the living room, playing with our black trucks, wrapping paper all around us from all the presents. And the, the parents were in the dining room. All the adults were in there. They're laughing, having fun, talking to each other. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> this fire just goes up the wall, which was awesome. As a kid, pyrotechnics in the lit. I mean, we got pre I got a present and there's fire. This is amazing. My mom didn't think it was awesome and my aunt didn't think it was awesome. So they came running for us. We're sitting there with this wrapping paper all around us. They grab us. Just a lesson for those of you who are buying presents for kids. We ditched the socks. We grabbed the truck. We end up on the front yard. The fire department comes, which makes it even cooler. Like the truck, they got cool trucks. You know, lights are going and all that stuff. And it's one of my favorite memories as a kid. Not a story of peace, however. Tis the season for peace? You think about what Christmas is really like. We can romanticize it and have it like all the stockings are hung with the chimney with care and be there and it's such a sweet time and we'll read Luke 2, but what's it really like? And what's our world really like? 
You leave here today and just flip on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, whatever it is you decide to watch, even local news, and you see all kinds of terrible stuff happening. Watch stuff with the fraternities, uh, Virginia? You see any of the Bill Cosby stuff that's going on? Or any other athlete, fill in the blank, Jameis Winston, the quarterback from Ohio State, sexual abuse being accused continually. We live in a culture where this sexual abuse is just continually happening. It's all over the news. Got violence taking place. Guys getting, young men getting their heads chopped off. Some American soldiers, some Pakistani soldiers, some soldiers from all of French soldiers. That's happening all over the place. Talk about peace. You look at a young girl got burned to death. You watch that story in Mississippi? It's just the news. That's the world out there. Think about your own life. You're in a small group. What are some of the prayer requests right now? People losing jobs or lost jobs. Difficulty, diseases that are taking place. Struggles, financial struggles, relational struggles. Trying to have children, struggles, all kinds of struggles. I spoke at a chapel this week. Every prayer request they had before I got up to speak was disease, death, and difficulty. It's Christmas. It's still happening. So how do we talk about peace? And not only that, think about your own. Like you're t- we're still talking about people we know. What about yourself? And we did a series, just a series right before this one, uh, called Trending Now, where we were asking you, what are your questions? And people ask questions about marriage and homosexuality and sex and all different stuff, God and science. And we covered all that stuff. But somebody asked me out underneath the awning a couple weeks ago, were you surprised by any of the feedback? And they were asking how we categorize stuff and kept the ones from individuals versus what they thought their neighbors would ask separate. And I said, what was surprising to me was that it wasn't even close. Overwhelmingly. The questions weren't overwhelmingly about homosexuality or marriage or God and science or any of the other stuff we talked about. Overwhelmingly, the questions were, why does bad stuff happen? Well, people didn't just ask, why does bad stuff happen? It was, why did my husband die? Why did my babies die? Why this disease? Why this difficulty? So how can we talk about peace? We're not just talking about having this magical feeling and experience that comes. We're talking about tis the season to pursue peace. And we think about what Jesus Christ did and he pursued us. That's what the, adv- that's what the story of Christmas is all about. It's that Jesus came for us. Think about why did Jesus come? I quote oftentimes Luke chapter 19 verse 10. For the son came to seek and save that which was lost. That's us. We were lost. We were going our own way. We didn't know any better. We went on a way that seemed right to us. But it was wrong. We were lost. Why did he come? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that we could have everlasting life. Why? Not to condemn the world, but to save the world. So he came on a rescue mission. He came to deliver us mission. Deliver us from what? Do you ever ask that? We think as believers a lot of time, we'll deliver us from sin. No, it wasn't deliver us from sin. He was delivering us from God himself, from God's wrath, because we were enemies of God because of our sin. So Jesus came to rescue us from his father because his wrath was going to be poured out on us and send us to hell for eternity. But he rescued us. He pursued us. He came for us. So Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom. Why a ransom? Well, he had to be the sacrifice. No more lambs, no more bulls. He was going to pay for our sins on the cross. He had to die for you and for me. And so he came on a pursuit mission. And then what happens is then we get to pursue him. That's what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament, Paul talks about everything in my life at one time that I thought was so profitable. If it doesn't point me to Christ, it's a loss. I want to pursue Christ, and I want to know him, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. And then in verse 12, in Philippians chapter 3, he says this, I press on. I move forward to try and take hold of that 
I haven't already obtained this, he says at the beginning. Oh, that's a great part of the verse too. Philippians chapter three, I think we have it. You can pop it up on the screen. He says, not that I've already obtained all this, because he talks about, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and fellowship of his suffering. And you might think to yourself, wow, Paul's pretty amazing. And he says, well, don't let me paint a false picture of myself. He says, not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already been made perfect, but I press on. I'm in a pursuit. I move forward to take hold of that. I want to grasp that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He came to purchase me. I want to know him. He came to purchase my peace. I want to experience his peace. And so today we talk about, tis the season for the pursuit of peace. He came pursuing us. What are we pursuing? And the big idea today is this. The peace we pursue is determined by the promises we believe. The peace we pursue is determined by the promises we believe. Because we all believe some promises. We live our lives based on a hope that we have that some promise is going to be fulfilled. And there are two categories of promises when you talk about peace that you can categorize all the promises as. The promises either promise that we can control circumstances. If I just made enough money, I'd have peace. If I just had this kind of relationship, I'd have peace. If this person in my relationship would just behave this way, then I'd have peace. If I could just have this environment, then I'd have peace. And you see it this way. Anytime things aren't going our way and we try to manipulate circumstances to make them go our way or we try to escape the circumstances so we can feel different and that can be through porn, food, somebody else's thoughts of us, whatever, you fill in the blank with a different idol and those are the things we'll oftentimes go after to try and get that peace. And then we come back, circumstances are the same, so now we got to try and control circumstances and maybe we leave a relationship and we try to manipulate a person to behave the way we want them to behave. Or... Uh, we leave an environment like job, work's not going well, so I'll just get a new job or maybe I'll just get a new position if I just had a promotion, if I just would demote because it's too much responsibility. If I could just, and we think if we controlled our circumstances, you probably don't see this anywhere more to be candid with you in, in Raleigh than in church hopping. Oh, I didn't like what something that I said, so I'm going to go to another. Some of you might leave because I said that. <laughs> just, there it is. That's what happened. It's just where we live. It's what it is. It's consumerism manifesting itself into our Christianity. And what it is, it really shows that we believe promises that are false promises. You know what kind of peace that is? That's Pax Romana kind of peace. That's the kind of the false savior promises. Caesar Augustus. Control the environment. Control your circumstances. And then you can have peace. You know what that requires? That requires that you manipulate everything to be stress-free. Lack of conflict, lack of war, which is possible. Go be a monk. Most of us won't do that. So the one we do is try and manipulate other circumstances. But there's another kind of peace. It's the kind of peace that can only be found in Christ. That Christ promises. In John chapter 14, he's promising the Holy Spirit. He says, it's better for me that I leave you. How could that even be possible? Come and give you the Spirit of God to be indwelling your life. And he says this in John chapter 14. My peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives. Not only does he not give as the world gives, he doesn't give what the world gives. Because think about who he's talking to. He's talking to his 12 closest followers. One of them will not experience this peace. He will kill himself. Judas. One of them will not be murdered for his faith, but he'll be boiled alive, John, abandoned on an island in Papas. Ten of them will be murdered for their faith. But Jesus says, I give you peace, because he's talking about a peace that surpasses circumstances, that perhaps even surpasses worldly understanding of peace. And so what kind of peace do you pursue? You don't answer that question, by the way, in this room. And you don't answer by writing down an answer in your notes, those of you who take notes. You've answered the question by how you live your life. Do I live my life trying to control all the circumstances? Do I live my life thinking if I could just get this stress to go away, if I could just reach this level of accomplishment, if I could just do whatever the things are, then I would experience what I'm ultimately looking for that's really only promised and only found in Jesus Christ. So what do you pursue? These men in this passage of Scripture are given a promise that sends them on a pursuit. 
and it's a pursuit of Christ. They were shepherds, which sometimes people will talk about as if they were the lowest of the low. They weren't. Lepers were the lowest of the low. Shepherds were more like the average person, considered unclean by many because they couldn't keep the ritual ceremonial washing laws, uh, so they couldn't go worship in the temple, and it's just ironic that they're probably overseeing sheep that were going to be used to be sacrificed in the temple. It's a broken system. But they, uh, they were doing that. And the rules that were made up weren't God's rules, by the way. They were made up by the religious people of the day and imposed upon people like shepherds. And so if you want to talk about God going to the outcast, it's a great to look at Mary, who was born in Nazareth, like we did last week. Here, it's more of the average person. And they're doing the average task that they would have to do and see how God intervenes in our routine. It's a theme through the Christmas story. They were keeping watch over their flocks at night. We don't know what time at night. We know it was dark out. Probably wasn't like in Raleigh where it gets dark at like 4 o'clock right now. It's probably later, like 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now an angel comes. This has been a theme too. It happened in Luke chapter 1 twice, once with uh, Zechariah, once with Mary. And you start to get this idea. That's how God speaks to people. Remember, he hasn't done this in 400 years. This isn't normal that this happens. They're out there trying to imagine being one of the shepherds. It's dark. They're keeping watch. What are they keeping watch from? Predatory animals and thieves. Some of the other shepherds are probably sleeping. It's really dark outside. I mean, they're away from the city dark. You ever go camping and you get away from the city and all of a sudden you're like, there are way more stars than I realized. And it's super, you know, there's all these stars in the sky and you can see the moon, but then right before your face, it's really dark. And so they're in that kind of darkness. And not only does an angel show up, look what it says next. This is unlike what happened with Mary and unlike what happened with Zechariah. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. What must that have been like? First of all, it says the glory shone. So it's a light. And we know throughout the Old Testament, up till this point, that the glory of God is a blazing light. The next time we see the glory of the Lord is about 30 years later, 33 years later, when Jesus is on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration and he allows some of his glory to be seen. Peter's there at the time. Matthew writes about it. What Matthew says about it is that his face was shining like the sun. Think about how bright that is. Don't look at it. Just think about it. And the way he describes Jesus' clothes is he says his clothes are the color of light. What color is that? Clorox has got nothing on that. That's bright. And then Peter says a statement. I love it. He goes, oh, it's good for me to be here. <laughs> just be quiet, Peter. You remind me of me. You'd just be better if you'd be quiet. You'd just be... Saying dumb stuff all the time. And then the next time we know this is going to happen, that we're going to see the glory of the Lord, is when Jesus comes for his second advent. The next time he comes to earth. And Matthew writes about that. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30. And he says some interesting things. He says, at, the time, at that time when Jesus comes back, the second coming, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will not rejoice. We'll all mourn at Jesus coming back. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. It's going to be a bright light. And he's going to come. And he's going to defeat his enemies. And we talk about him being meek and mild in a passage here. When he comes back, it will be a different picture. He'll have blood on his robe and it will not be his own. And his glory will shine. The light will shine. That light gets described in the book of Revelation. Did you know And when we go to heaven, there's not going to be a sun or a moon because the glory of God is going to light the place. In Revelation chapter 21, 
We're told about this. It says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is its lamp. And so that kind of glory, you're one of the shepherds, you're out there, you're doing your routine, you're keeping watch over the flocks, it's really dark outside, and an angel comes, and not only that, but then the brightness of the glory of God shines around the angel. And they're terrified, the text says. It says, and they were, like Luke even needed to tell us, they were terrified, literally in Greek, it's they feared a great fear. They didn't even know what they were afraid of. They're just, they are afraid because they're afraid because it's a fearful moment. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. We see angels saying this all the time. Why not be afraid? I bring you good news. I'm not here to destroy you. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And you also, it's interesting, if you study joy in Luke, is that joy is always attached to salvation. It's not attached to circumstances. It's attached to you, you know Christ, then you can have real joy. You see it, and uh, Jesus sends out, Luke chapter 10, he sends out his uh, 72 disciples. They come back, they're all pumped because they can cast out demons, and the demons are submitting to them. And they start telling this to Jesus, and Jesus says, don't be excited that the demons submit to you. Be excited that you're going to go to that place where my glory is going to light it up. Be excited that your names are written in the book of life. Be excited that you've experienced salvation. Salvation and joy go together. In Luke chapter 15, it's a story of lost stuff. Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. And it continually pits together. Rejoice, the verb for joy. Rejoice in the fact of salvation. Rejoice that one sinner repents. Luke chapter 15, verse 7. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. All of heaven, the angels rejoice. See, what do the angels think about salvation? They never get to experience it. They don't know what it's like to be lost and then found. Peter says they wish they could look into these things. So heaven has joy over the fact that somebody turns to Jesus Christ. Salvation is where joy comes from. And it's for all the people. And what is this news? What is the news of this joy that brings the salvation today in the town of David in Bethlehem, just like it's been promised for hundreds of years in the Old Testament? A Savior. The very fact that he's called a Savior means you need saving, and I need saving, and everyone who reads these words needs saving. Saving from what? From God. From his wrath. A Savior has been born to you, shepherds. He is Christ, the anointed one. He is the Lord. You don't find those three titles together anywhere else in the New Testament in one verse like that. All the titles right there. He is Savior, Rescuer, Redeemer. He is Christ, Anointed One, Holy One. He is Lord, He will rule, and He will reign. And this will be the sign. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. What? Time out. Try and imagine. You don't know this story. You've never read this before. You're the shepherds. All you know is the Old Testament. For unto us, a child is born. Government will be on his shoulders. He's going to be a king. He's going to be the prince of peace. He's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be mighty God. He's going to come from the line of David. He will be the lion of Judah. Would you have ever imagined that a baby would then be born in a cave where animals are eating? And then he'd be laid in his crib would be where animals are fed in a manger. Now, you've probably, if you've been around church, you've been um, reading the Christmas story on your own for any amount of time, or maybe even when you were a little kid, somebody read it to you, uh, you've heard someone say a line something like this. That's not how we would write the story. We wouldn't make him a pauper. We'd make him a prince. He'd be born in a palace, not in a stable. And some, how we'd have lots of pomp and circumstance around the birth if we're going to bring, this is the most important moment in history, and you're going to bring the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords into humanity. And if I was going to write the story, this is how I'd write it. And we talk about how fabulous his entrance would be versus the humble circumstances that we see. But let me just pause and say, that makes an assumption that's just not true. That assumes that you'd write the story. You'd never write the story. Period. Not that you wouldn't even write it this way, 
you would never think of this. Neither would I. Is there anyone here who would think, I know what I'll do so that all of mankind can experience reconciliation with God and no peace. I'll have God become human. Anyone write that story? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? No one would even, we wouldn't even think of that. You nor I would ever come up with this, even the idea of this. And do you know why that is? The Bible tells us his ways and our ways are not the same. As far as the heaven is from the earth, that's what the Bible describes as how different his ways are from our ways. You know how far heaven is from earth? He's not just up there in the clouds, by the way. We're talking galaxies apart. So that's how different his thoughts are than our thoughts. We wouldn't even come up with this story, so we wouldn't write it this way, much less we wouldn't even write it. So how shocking was it to the shepherds to then be told, you're going to find a baby, he's going to be in the most humble circumstances you could imagine, wrapped in some claws and lying where animals eat. That sounds preposterous. It sounds ridiculous. Now let me pause and ask you this question. How many of you, your lives haven't gone the way that you would imagine they would go? And you think that something must be wrong. But let me remind you, your ways and his ways, they're not even, not even close. Different worlds. The way you think about how things should go. and the way that Maybe the way your life has gone is exactly the way that he's wanted it to go to bring you to the place that you're at at this very moment because he wants to point you to his peace. And he had to get you to this place in order to show you his peace, real peace. And maybe the very fact that you think in your mind, if I could just control this circumstance, if I could just make this happen, if I could just that you don't understand what it is for him to be Lord. That you don't understand what it is, that that he's the one that actually brings peace and he has a better plan and it might mean difficulty and it might mean disease and it might mean death, but it's ultimately better. And he uses those very things to bring you to the place that you're at that you can then see it. Where if you just controlled everything, you'd live in fantasy land. And that's what some of us are pursuing. It's fantasy land. His ways and our ways, they're not even close we wouldn't even write this story, much less write it this way. And so the angel speaks to them. One angel at this point. Shepherds are out in the field. It's dark outside, but then the glory of the Lord shines around them, shone around them. And then look what happens, as if that wasn't enough. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host, an army encampment of angels, breaks through creation and begins to do what they're doing in heaven. Now, we don't know how many there are here. Some people speculate that that's because the human mind couldn't fathom the number that would be mentioned. And so you've got so many angels here, we can't count them. They appeared with the angel that was speaking to them, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, because that's why he came, for his glory. But there are implications for us on earth, and on earth, peace to men, on whom his favor rests. And so I don't know if you've ever watched a musical But if you watch a musical, a lot of times the way the writers will put it together is that the main characters will sing parts and they will act out parts, and that carries the story. But every once in a while, they'll want to put commentary on a setting or a feeling one of the main characters are having, and they'll bring in a choir. That's essentially what happens here. The main characters, the shepherd, the angel, and the main character, Jesus Christ, are living this out. That's the story. But then this heavenly choir comes in and says, let me tell you what's going on here. This is for God's glory, glory to God in the highest. And their implications for you is for your peace. But notice it says here, peace on whom 
his favor rests. That might be different than the way that some of you know this. Maybe you're driven by a church sign or you've received in a card or you memorized in the old King James. In King James, the passage actually reads like this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. So on earth, peace. Goodwill toward men. The idea of all men. It's goodwill towards everybody. Just everybody happy. Peace for everybody. But that's not the accurate translation of this passage. The English Standard Version is probably the most accurate translation. And it says it like this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, Peace among those with whom he is pleased. The NIV says it like this, like I just read, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor, another word for grace, rests. So who are those people? Is it the people who do goodwill, King James? Is it the really nice people? No, it's not that. It's those who respond to him. See, the joy to the world is for all people. Verse 10 is accurate. It is. Joy to the, it's for all people. You'll hear that song, Joy to the World, at Applebee's today, or Barnes & Noble, or wherever you go. They play that song. It's true. It's for everybody. But we all know this to be true. Not everybody benefits from Jesus coming. So who benefits? It's those who respond to him. It's those who, Luke 15, repent. They turn to him. It's those who recognize that I do need a Savior, and, and it can't be any of these false saviors I go to, because they're not working. And so I turn to Jesus Christ. That's who receives the peace. See, the peace that's being talked about here is not the kind of peace that's promised by Caesar Augustus, that's promised by this world. If you just controlled your circumstances, if you just manipulated, if you just removed stress, if you just took away the thing that's bothering you, if you just put yourself in another environment, that's not what's being talked about here. The kind of peace that's being talked about here, the word, the Greek word is arene. Behind that Greek word is a Hebrew word. It's shalom. Shalom is the kind of peace that comes that brings wholeness, completeness, an inner tranquility, regardless of your circumstances, kind of peace. It's the kind of peace that Jesus promises. It's the kind of peace that so many of us lack, and for many of us, it's what brought us to Jesus Christ. Think about it in my own story. I remember being 17 years old, would basically try to live out the book of Ecclesiastes, go and try and do things that I thought would bring satisfaction, different idols, fill in the blank with idols, and come home and, and be like, why does that not work? I remember laying in bed at night after partying and doing all the stuff I thought I wanted to do that night and asking God, God, why do I feel so empty? Why after doing that do I feel so empty? And what will happen for many of us is we'll say, well, then maybe this will fix it. Maybe if I just had this experience, if I just went to this place, if I just had this accomplishment, if I just did these things. But eventually what happens is we realize none of this stuff satisfies and for some of us, God breaks us to the point where we turn to Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives this peace. And let me say this. Apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot experience this peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says it like this. Therefore, since we've been justified, made right with God through faith, by believing, placing our trust in him, we have peace with God, key word, with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So everybody who turns to Jesus Christ then has the opportunity for this peace. They have peace with God. Their sins have been dealt with. They've been justified. It's been removed. The barrier between them and God, they're not being saved any longer from the wrath of God. They have peace with God, but not everybody who has peace with God has the peace of God. Think about the peace of God. Jesus lived shalom. He had peace. You see it in his life. You see, when the disciples are freaking out because there's a storm and he's taking a nap, do you know why that is? Because he knows his time hasn't come. And he knows that God controls the wind and the waves. He has a unique connection with God, being God and being God's son. He says, calm down, storm. Calms it all down. He's not freaked out. Think about how calm he is 
when he's being questioned by Pilate, and he doesn't say anything. And then Pilate says to him, don't you know that I have authority to have you killed? <laughs> and then you see who's really in control in that circumstance. He says, you don't have any authority that my father didn't give you. He's being mocked and spit upon by us. And he says, no one takes my life. I lay it down. And he has peace because he knows that God's in control of circumstances. God's in control. He takes a king like Augustus and puts a young, poor couple in the city he wants them to be 100 miles away from where they were supposed to be. God's got this. His ways and our ways, they're not the same. And what's really amazing is that then Jesus gives this peace to his followers. You see, even in the Old Testament, you see Daniel in the lion's den and the peace that he has. It doesn't matter about circumstances. He's got a different, he's got shalom. You see, one of my favorite stories, you see continually in the New Testament, when people come to him to be healed by faith, not everybody gets healed by faith. When people come to him to be healed by faith, he says a statement like this, go in peace. What's he saying? One of my favorite stories, Luke chapter 7. This woman has a reputation. She's done bad stuff. And she comes to this house where Jesus is having a meal with a snob, with a self-righteous, self-dependent, self-reliant guy named Simon. He's a religious, he's a fake. He doesn't even know he's a fake. He knows the Bible well and knows all this stuff. And this woman comes in and he's just judging this woman the whole time. And Jesus knows it. And she's washing Jesus' feet. And Jesus looks at Simon and says, um, who loves more, people that are forgiven much or people that are forgiven little? He knows everything Simon's thinking. Simon knows the answer. He grabs the woman by the face text tells us. He says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Do you have that peace? Do you know that Savior? How is it that so many people that know the Savior don't have that peace, though? Because we have peace with God. We've been made right through the death of Jesus Christ and salvation. We've come to Christ. We've turned to Him, repented of our sins. But are we experiencing the peace of God, the same peace we see in Jesus' life? It's supposed to be what's called a fruit of the Spirit. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, lists the fruits of the Spirit. That when you trust Christ, the Spirit of God comes to live in you. If you have Christ, you have the Spirit. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit doesn't have Christ. Romans chapter 8, you can find that. I believe that's in Romans chapter 8. And uh, what you end up doing is you see that we should have a supernatural peace about our lives if we're followers of Jesus. And a supernatural love and joy and kindness and... and, uh, righteousness, and, and you see the faithfulness all throughout, all the characteristics in Galatians chapter 5. Do you have that kind of peace? Do you have supernatural peace? A peace that in Philippians 4 is talked about as a peace that surpasses understanding, and many of us don't. I read a quote that haunted me after I read it, and it has sense. It was a couple years ago I read this book by Francis Chan called Forgotten God. It's actually a book about the Holy Spirit. Towards the end, around uh, the end of the book, one, it's only like 200 pages, like 145 or something like that is the page number, and it's uh, uh, in the book, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And when he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, he just asks some questions. And I want to read to you some of the questions he asked that have just stuck with me because it makes me think, are we really different? If we have Jesus Christ, do we really have the kind of peace that he talks about? The Francis Chan quote, he asked about different characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. He says, do you exhibit more kindness and faithfulness than the Mormons you know? Do you know any Mormons? Um, do you have more self-control than your Muslim friends, pretty disciplined folks. I don't know a ton. can't think of any right now. More peace than Buddhists. Do I have more peace than people I know that don't know Jesus? More joy than atheists. If God truly lives in you, shouldn't you expect to be different from everyone else? Shouldn't you expect 
to have a peace that surpasses understanding for everyone. The only kind of peace they even understand is a peace that would be manipulating circumstances so that when you go through difficult circumstances, whether it be the death of a loved one, whether it be a disease, whether it be difficulty, that they would then look at your life and go, I don't understand how you have the peace that you have. Do you have that kind of peace? Because that's what Christ promises. And you see, he promises it to these men here. And then you look at, let me just read you the rest of the story, verses 15 through 20. When the angels had left them, so the host of angels, the angel that was speaking to them, the glory of God closes up, and they're back to normal, and they had gone into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, what would you have said, by the way, before we read the next line? I think I'd have been like, man, that was awesome. They said, let's go. I think that I would have been like, let's just hang out and enjoy what happened here. Like the glory of God had just been shining around us. And I would have probably hung out in the afterglow, but that's not what they do. They go on a pursuit. Look what they do. They said, let's go. Let's go to Bethlehem. And let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off. They immediately obeyed. They probably got some other shepherds to watch their sheep, but they hurried off. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger, just like it was said. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning, and notice this, not concerning the glory of the Lord shining on them, not concerning the angels showing up to them, not concerning all of those things, but what had been told them about this child. Why that? Why not their experience? You can't duplicate their experience, but God's peace, it's joy for all people. It's available to everybody that responds. And so he tells the news not about all the events that took place, but about who this child is. He is Christ, the Lord, the Savior, to rescue you from your sins, to give you peace. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary, they were all amazed. Didn't mean they all responded. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned. They didn't go on the circuit giving their testimony. They went back to their jobs. And they returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. And this is a key phrase, which were just as they had been told. In other words, God keeps his promises. What promises do you believe? If you believe the promises of Christ, and it's not just the promise of peace, although it's that. It's the promise of joy, promise of satisfaction. I came that you could have life, you could have it to the fullest, you could have it abundantly. I came that you don't have to have worries, you don't have to have anxiety about these things. I came, I give you promises for that. Next week we'll talk about promises as presence. You've got all kinds of promises. If you believe his promises, you pursue him. And that's what you get. Him. Joy is a byproduct. Peace is a byproduct. All of those things, faithfulness, kindness. It's not, oh, I just need to be kinder. No, it's, I need Christ. I'm going to pursue Christ. I'm going to do what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know him regardless of what that means, regardless of the circumstances I go through. If that's the joy of the power of the resurrection, awesome. If it means fellowship and his sufferings and his death, that's fine. Because everything else that I might get, I consider that a loss. It doesn't give me Christ. It might give me some self-sufficiency. It might give me some accomplishments. Read Philippians chapter 3. But it doesn't give me Christ. All I want is Christ, and I pursue him. Not that I've obtained all of it. I'm on a pursuit. But he took hold of me, and I want him. Or you can pursue, I want to manipulate my circumstances, and I want to have the kind of peace that Caesar Augustus promised his people, where you control outward things. And maybe if I control all the outward things, then everything will feel good, fantasy land. But if what I'm talking about today, if it's even slightly possible... I mean, like, if you even have a mustard seed of faith that maybe Christ could deliver on the peace that he promises, shouldn't you abandon everything else and pursue that? 
Shouldn't you be like the guy in Matthew chapter 13 who finds a, a treasure in a field, considers it his joy to then sell everything he has to go buy that field? Shouldn't you go after Christ with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength? What pursuit are you on? Let's pray. Father, thank you for coming after us. Thank you for doing things we would never even imagined. Becoming human, dying, allowing us to murder you so that your wrath could be satisfied, so that we could have peace with you. I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't have peace with you today, they're in their sin, they're going their own way, they're doing their own thing, and they need you, that they would turn to you right now. God, speak to their hearts. Call out to them. Tap them on the shoulder and say, I'm, I'm talking to you. And have them turn to you. And you can turn to them. You just go to them and say, I need a Savior. I want you to be my Savior. I'm tired of these other things that I've been turning to. They're not making me whole. I want you to make me whole. Forgive me of my sin. I want you to be my Savior. Right now, I ask you, Jesus Christ, to be my Lord and my Savior. And you can pray that right now in your seat. And Father, I pray for those of us who are followers of yours that we do have peace with you. But we're not experiencing necessarily your peace, the peace of God. God, will you give us that peace as we pursue you and we come to know you as a byproduct of knowing you, that we would love like you, we'd have joy like you, we'd have peace like you. God, fill us with your spirit. Allow us to be different. Change us, please. And trigger our hearts and move our minds and our lives that we would pursue you, whether that means going to a foreign country in Panama, whether that means going to the coffee shop after church, whether it means going home to family. God, will you have us pursue you with all that we are and all that we have. In Jesus' name I pray.